Jordan and Gretzky, Serena and Ruth Remembering great ones is easy to do What about the no-names who spent their whole lives Long stepping footballs and catching sack flies Their guys, remember that guy some guys now the respect that i have for chickens there was there was a time when i said that chicken's a nervous bird i don't eat chicken i don't eat meat you know but uh but uh, i was dead wrong i i stand corrected those chickens are low maintenance and high production they lay an egg every 26 27 hours and uh they need water need food and I play with them too. I let them out in the yard. We run around. They're happy to see me. They're happy to remember that guy. The show we mine our memories for nuggets of nostalgia about peripheral players past and present. Hey there, folks. Me, one of your hosts, James, and uh, go Birds. Go Birds. Diaz back with you once again. We're not going to be laying an egg this week, though. What we are going to do, though, is we're going to introduce our very special guest. He does run the place that you can get the best chicken in Philadelphia. Surprisingly, it's a donut shop. He's got some more on that. Please introduce yourself. Yeah, you know what? It's good as a business to diversify, and we found that what do people love the most with their chicken? Donuts. So we just combined the two, and that is why I am now the billionaire, very special guest, Xavier. Who has uh, recently taken over the business, we should say, from Michael Solomonov. Happy to have you here to get things kicked off. I wonder, you know, not to count our chickens before they hatch but i thought when you came on you might have something that was making memories for you yeah i got a couple things some little small things first i want to start off phenomenal tweet by the portugal national soccer team earlier today in their game against i believe it was Liechtenstein. uh don't quote me on that because i did not watch this game i just looked at this tweet it is substitutions jao nevis and jao mario for Jao Cancelo and Jao Felix. All spelled the same way. It was two Jaws out, two Jaws in. And I do love that. I mean, at a certain point, like, the Jao just needs to be assumed. Can't we do, like, a factorial there and just do, like, Jao and then parentheses the sub? <laughs> I've looked at this before to try to figure out what team had the most, like, the highest percentage of the same name. I can share something related to the Orioles this year for the first time ever had three Ryans in one lineup. That was the first time in major league history. We had Ryan Mountcastle, Ryan McKenna and Ryan O'Hearn all starting the same lineup. So the one that I found was the Malian national team had three Adama Traores at the same time. And none of them were the premier league Adama Traore who plays for Spain. So there were technically four different Adamatrieres all active at the same time, three of which on the same national team. So you could have had an entire like front three of Adamatriore and have it not be the most famous Adamatriore in soccer at the time, which I think is just phenomenal. But that's one thing. We also have the Nations League tonight on Thursday when we're recording where the USA is playing old bogey team Trinidad and Tobago without Christian Pulisic, without Timothy Weah, without Tyler Adams, uh, all out due to injury. 
And this is technically the Nations League quarterfinals. But what's more important is this is the qualifier for the Copa America, which is going to be held in the USA in 2024. But the USA does not automatically qualify, unlike that Copa America centenario that almost killed Diaz. So we do need to win home today and then on the 20th in Trinidad. Hopefully we can just win 6 or 7 nothing today and then not have to worry about that one. But it is important that this is a team that has caused us our biggest shame of the past 20 years. Can't take anything lightly. But the U.S. should win and hopefully will win big enough tonight that they don't have to worry about the return leg in Trinidad this weekend. First of all, highly illegal. They, they get two. We only get <laughs> one. This is ridiculous. If we got to link up with Mexico, we'd fuck up the entire CONCACAF. But Trinidad and Tobago, come on now. Um, I don't care if our top guns are out. Like, Shaka Hislop ain't walking through that door. I don't know who their goalie is. We need to be able to score on this motherfucker. Trinidad and Tobago should only be allowed to play Bosnia and Herzegovina. Those two countries are just locked together in all international competition forever. Because like you're saying, yes, it's the only thing that's fair. You got to have the pairs go off in their own different category. I have so many problems with Bosnia and Herzegovina because it is a country that is a confederation. The confederation is not Bosnia and Herzegovina. It's Bosnia and Herzegovina, then the Skripsko Republic. But they just call the country Bosnia and Herzegovina, acting as something like that makes you think, oh, it's a confederation of these two things. No, that's one of the two parts. It is the most misleading name ever. Well, Xavier, I'll just say you clearly know more about this country than I do. They control a third small piece that is owned by both Bosnia and Herzegovina and the Scriptural Republic. One of only two instances of a condominium in the real estate world actually happening in real life. Two different republics own the same land and just decide to run it together. This is what happens when you are on Wikipedia way too much and like geography. What was the deal when it was Serbia and Montenegro in the Olympics? Was that, was Montenegro just part of Serbia then? What was going on there? It was one country with two different autonomous republics. That whole breakup of the Balkans was like that, where it led to, you know, now... They're mostly their own countries, but Bosnia is different in that the Bosniaks are one people, and then the Skripska Republic, I'm probably saying they're terrible, is the Serbians in, in that country. So they just run themselves, but as one country. It's very strange. That, that, that whole region, there's a lot going on. That's not important. Let me tease. Let me just tease real quick. We will be touching on the Eastern Bloc in a little bit. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, okay. Then we'll spend a lot of time in the Eastern Bloc. Okay. Uh, what is good, though, is the U.S. women's national team has a new coach that I've been waiting to talk about because it is the best coach in all of women's soccer, Emma Hayes, who got her start, really, in America, but you know went back to England, turned Chelsea uh, into one of the greatest women's teams in the world, which hurts as an Arsenal fan, but also I can recognize that she is an incredible coach. She was doing pretty much everything by herself initially and still wasn't even supported that much. And, you know, the U.S. women going out and saying, we want the best coach in the game. We're going to get the best coach in the game and money is no object to the point where they quadrupled Emma Hayes' reported Chelsea salary 
and are paying her the same as Greg Berhalter, the only country in the world now that has equal pay for both men's and women's national teams, to the point where Emma Hayes is making like more than double any other women's coach in soccer, from what I was able to see earlier. And she's worth it. I, I would not be surprised if they just immediately went and won the Olympics next year like under her with no real change in personnel just because of how good of a coach she is. I'm really excited. It's great to see, you know, a lot of people were upset that Greg Berhalter's contract expired, had all of this investigation into his prior conduct and a new search just to rehire him. And it felt like, you know, kind of cutting corners. They did not cut corners here. They went, they wanted the best coach in the world and they went and got the best coach in the world. And that's very exciting for me. So I I can't wait to see what they do. If they were not going to go with my first choice, which was BJ Callahan. (laughs) I do suppose Emma Hayes is a very fine second choice. BJ Callahan will be back at some point. We we will see him. And, you know, I'm not worried about him. I'm not worried about Emma Hayes. And I'm also not worried about Tumble Basketball, which is 3-0 for the first time in five years. Go coach Adam Fisher. Go Birds. Enough about that. Will, Will we see March Basketball not on North Broad, I guess, because you don't, you don't play it at home. But will we get to watch Temple play postseason basketball again? Please, God, please. Fingers crossed. But enough of that. Diaz, what's making memories for you? So here's what's making memories for me. First of all, listener, as you hear this, I will have hopefully completed the Philadelphia Marathon. Uh, fingers crossed there. Really hope I make it to the finish line. No promises. This will be a very dark episode if, for whatever reason, I didn't finish the race. So let's hope all's good. I'm sure that it is. I'm sure that I did great. But we got to talk about somebody who is great, but did not do great. Have either of you heard of Yoasha Zakshetsky? Maybe, I, but not. I can't like say that. I have. That name is not ringing any bells. Well, Yoasha Zakshetsky, uh, first of all, Scottish with a name like that. Hmm. Incredible. Second of all, she is probably the greatest ultra-distance runner in the world right now. She, in February, set the world record for distance covered in a 48-hour run. Would either of you like to guess the number of miles she ran in 48 hours? I'm trying to do some quick math. Give me one second. I'm going to say just under 300 miles. 273. We're doing prices right. You're both fucked. Uh, Xavier, you are a little closer. 255.7 miles, which comes close to, but it is uh, 411.5 kilometers. So just a few more kilometers, and we're dealing with a, a very, very high total there. But we need to focus on a great disgrace that Yoasha committed. She has been found to have violated the rules of competition. And as you may normally think with these, you're going to think, oh, performance-enhancing drugs. No. In April, she ran in the Great Britain Ultras, which is a 50-mile race. And she officially finished third, claimed her third-place medal, until some people took a look into the data and the GPS and the checkpoint data, and the math just simply was not mathing. She would later admit to hopping into a car for two and a half miles of that 50-mile race before then getting back out to complete it. That's 
so frustrating because like if you're gonna do it rosie ruiz it the whole way and don't fucking do anything you're gonna take five percent of the race off fucking why man it just seems very not worth it and to her credit i guess or at least based on her explanation she was in third when she got in the car she didn't want to cheat the first or second place people so she didn't want to overtake them but she did want to ride in a car for two and a half miles. So once she realized she was getting <laughs> close to second. She didn't want to cheat them as she was in a car. That's very fun and interesting. <laughs> the, two, the two people who were ahead of her, she didn't want to cheat. All of you other suckers behind her, behind you, Asha, you know, screw them. But the reason why this happened in April but is now in the news is the punishment just came down this week. She has been banned from competition for one full year, which I – Guess seems fair. She claims uh, that I wanted to do the right thing, but then I was just on the podium and then they're putting this medal around my head and why ruin a great moment, right? Um, <laughs> what What do you mean you wanted to do the right thing? You got in a car. It's, and like, the, it's so funny because like the commissioner of the race was trying to be very graceful. It was like, look, even if we want to concede that she was in a brain fog due to the intensity of the competition, she had a full week to admit to what she did before she finally came forward. So I, I do believe this is a just outcome. I am excited to see what Yoasha comes back with when she returns to the field of competition. Hopefully no wheels, no motors, just her legs. And uh, one thing I can promise to all of our listeners, I will not be in a car for any percent of the Philadelphia Marathon. And I do look forward to, and it will perhaps be the only reason I make it to the finish line, Xavier, the medalla that you will provide to me upon finishing that race. As I said yesterday, it's going to go down the hatch. I don't know if it's going to stay down the hatch, but it will go down the hatch. I'm going to give it to you and then immediately back up 10 feet. Like you gave me water after a long bike ride and I couldn't keep it down. I don't think that beer is staying down. To be determined. I'll make sure I get a really good photo of just Diaz fountaining into the air. <laughs> Who knows? I mean, it's, it's really anybody's guess. But one thing that I don't want to guess on, one thing that I need to know, James, is what's making memories for you. Well, first off, fellas, it's on. It's on. The, the rivalries that now exist in the PLL between the three of us, Premier Lacrosse League, those rivalries are on because... I have watched some of the PLL the last couple of years. We uh, have had it as this kind of rotating attraction going on in cities where all of the teams do not have a geographical home. They've just been playing in these showcases around the country. And they finally, this week, on my birthday, decided they were going to have different teams. And so I got a new team. I got the Maryland Whipsnakes. Very stupid. But you know what? Go Whipsnakes. They actually won the first two PLL titles in 2019 and 2020. Then they got to the playoffs where they faced the Water Dogs, who are now, you scoundrels, the Philadelphia Water Dogs. Boo! Boo! Uh, The Water Dogs denied them their only time not making it to the semifinals. That playoff loss in the first round to the Water Dogs is the only time that the Whipsnakes have not made the semis. They haven't won a title again since. They made it to the playoffs again last year. And that is where they faced the New York Atlas in the semifinals. Now that is the New York Atlas. Xavier, I presume your new team here uh, that you're already a diehard fan of. 
who are probably going to get sued over that uh, <laughs> logo being like, yeah, we're in New York and we're having a, a blue logo that's bulls. We definitely don't already have, you know, the University of Buffalo blue bull logos or anything, anything else with that that could be an issue. You guys have a lot of horned animals uh, in general. The Red Bulls, too. And the Sabres and the Bills. But all that to say, the Atlas did not win the title last year, but uh, they did finish runners-up. So, you know, sure, it's eight teams. We all three have competitive teams. They are all in the same division. And we can now hate one another deeply in this rivalry that we will develop around this new sport. But there's one other thing I want to touch on real quick. I was very excited initially before we had some scheduling snafus last week that we were recording earlier in the week because it allowed something that happened last Sunday to still be at the forefront of my mind. And we can't possibly move past this beautiful moment with the Houston Texans. No, I don't personally give a shit about CJ Stroud right now. I care instead about a guy on the Texans. That guy is Dare Ogumbuale. If Dare. I recognize that last. Dare, sorry. Dare Ogumbuale. Uh, I have read this mostly and seen the clip, but oh, have I seen this clip many, many times. What clip? You may be asking. Well, Ogumbuale, who we must say real quick, if you recognize the last name, probably not necessarily from what he's done. He's not a super well-known football player, though he's been a running back in the league for a few years now. Largely what you should know that last name for is his sister, Arike, who plays with the Dallas Wings in the W. So, Ogumbuale, Derry has been on the Texans this year. And their kicker, John Christian Fairbairn, who actually has another name that I am going to do my best to pronounce correctly here. Ka iminu o e meka i keoke kumumpa. That is his full Hawaiian name. He is uh, their kicker on the Texans. Got injured. They don't have a backup kicker. And so they turn to Dari, who is already, you know, special teams gunner. They do ask him to fill in. Does a couple perfectly fine kickoffs and then does get called in eventually for a 24 yard field goal, which he got to say fucking nails. Like, yeah, it's not that long. It's right down the uprights. Important field goal, their eventual win. And just a incredible moment as the team mobs him. It was the first time in nearly two decades uh, since 2004 that a position player kicked a successful field goal. Anyone did you guys hear in the trivia following this who the last one was? So I know Doug Flutie had a drop kick extra point, but I don't think that's what you're going for. No, no. It's a 2004 uh, with the Miami Dolphins, but you do not necessarily associate this player with the Miami Dolphins. Reggie Bush. That could be Ricky. We are looking for Wes Welker. Wes Welker oh, in 2004. Wow. Special teams ace came in to kick a field goal in relief. Hadn't been done since then. Dario Ogumbawale successfully did that. And, you know, they immediately after this signed a kicker that week. Like, it's, it's been two weeks since this happened. I mean, I'm going to go to yet another Ravens game tonight. This is already in the past. We will have probably all forgotten it by the time the season ended. But it felt so faded initially for us to talk about it. Uh, it has stayed with me, and I just want to make sure that we honored him. Also, just continue. So he said that, you know, he was able to do it because he's just played soccer forever which just continues to drive home the fact that Baltimore Polytechnic Institute, if you want to not next year lose for a fucking 12th time to Baltimore City College. That's right. Poly lost the City Poly game for the 11th time this year. Just go get the first kid cut from the soccer team. Drag him over to the other field. For the love of God, get someone that can kick on our fucking team. 
Polly, you were doing me dirty. But enough about my anger at high schoolers. I do think that this <laughs> general high school discussion here at the end does kind of tie in nicely to Diaz, what I believe it is we'll be discussing this week. Absolutely. So it's it's often said that the stars that burn the brightest also burn the quickest. And that's kind of what we want to touch on here. We want to touch on guys who, in their earlier years, specifically their teen years, specifically like Starfire, perhaps they could be called Teen Titans. We want to focus on guys who peaked early. And the guy that I want to talk about, first off, I need to, I need to talk in modern terms to be able to set the table for this guy. I'm sure both of you have. I'm sure most of our listeners have heard of Baby Gronk. Yes. Have we heard of Baby Gronk? Baby Gronk rizzed up Livy. Baby Gronk rizzed up Livy. You stole one of my lines from later on. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. Baby, but Baby Gronk, uh, born name, Madden San Miguel. Yes, that Madden. Yes, he's named after John Madden. And he's probably best known for his father. His father, Jake, is very over the top in the marketing of Madden's youth football career. Now, Madden would not yet be eligible for our episode because Madden is still only 11 years old. Just celebrated his 11th birthday. Happy birthday, Madden. But if you are a football fan, you cannot help but to draw the parallels between this very overbearing father who insists that he has his son on this very regimented diet and has been training him since he was in the crib. It is impossible to not draw the parallels and perhaps the cautions with the guy that I want to talk about today, Todd Moranovich. I, 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 I had a feeling once you were, yes, please, please talk about him. Hooray for abusive parents. Hooray for abusive parents. You know, they get some high-performing kids, but sometimes those kids turn out to be pretty fucked up. And we'll see if that's the case with Todd as we dive into our story. First of all, Todd, not born Todd. He's born Marvin Scott Moranovich to Marv and Trudy Moranovich. His birthday was July 4th, 1969, which is pretty nice and patriotic. A great combination, if I do say so myself. Born on the most nice 4th of July. Incredibly nice. Until we get to 42,069, it is the nicest. But it's impossible to tell the story of Todd without telling the story of Marv. So let's just briefly touch on Marv here for a second. Marv was the captain of the 1962 USC football team that won the national championship, though the Rose Bowl that would serve as national championship for that season, Marv would get ejected from that game for elbowing a Wisconsin Badger. Shows some of the fiery temper that he would come to be known by, but he was beloved by his teammates. His teammates voted him the most inspirational teammate for that 1962 season. Marv would go on to be drafted by the Raiders for whom he would play exactly one game in a three-year career. And this is largely due to a an over... This is largely due to the fact that he was overly intense in his training. He would bulk up too much. He would not give himself enough time to recover. And he would learn from these mistakes. He would go on to become a, an athletic performance trainer. He would be fairly successful in that field. He would train a whole bunch of athletes. The main methods that he would use were derived from Eastern block training. Uh, this is kind of the basis for a lot of modern core training, but there's a lot more emphasis on flexibility and core strength 
in Eastern Bloc training as compared to just traditional weightlifting. So this kind of served as the basis for Marv's platform. And while he was often training these fully-fledged adults with professional aspirations, a thought did occur to him. What if we start with these training methods from the very beginning? And now we bounce back to Todd. First, to quote from the infamous Sports Illustrated article written on Todd when he was in high school. He has never eaten a Big Mac or an Oreo or a Ding Dong. When he went to birthday parties as a kid, he would take his own cake and ice cream to avoid sugar and refined white flour. He would eat homemade catsup, not ketchup. That's how they wrote it back then. Weird as fuck. Prepared with honey. He did consume beef, but not the kind injected with hormones. He only ate unprocessed dairy products. He teethed on frozen kidney. When Todd was one month old, Marv was already working on his son's physical conditioning. He stretched his hamstrings. Push-ups were next. Marv invented a game in which Todd would try to lift a medicine ball onto a kitchen counter. Marv also put him on a balance beam. Both got easier when Todd learned how to walk. There was a football. I just want to say for one second, he invented a game where he just had to put a heavy thing above him. Like, what's the game? That that reminds me of there's one time I was left uh, home alone with my dad, and I guess I was just particularly annoying the shit out of him. So he said, hey, do you want to play a game called 52 Pickup? And I said, oh, what's 52 Pickup? And he got a deck of cards, and he threw them in the air, and he said, there's 52 cards, pick them up. Not quite on maybe the same level as this, but it does it does uh, bring back a, a slight, not even a trauma, because I, I kind of got the joke immediately. And, and I was like, all right, I mean, I'm going to go back, play video games, Dad. Fucking joke's on you. To finish it, both activities grew easier when Todd learned to walk. There was a football in Todd's crib from day one. Not a real NFL ball, says Marv. That would be sick. It was a stuffed ball. It's good to know that Marv Moranovich had some limits to what he was willing to do. We don't want to be sick in having our fucking infant child teeth on frozen kidney. We're just going to give him a stuffed football. Incredible stuff. But even that excerpt doesn't do it justice. Marv, from before Todd was born, from before Todd was conceived, had this idea in his head of crafting the perfect athlete. Trudy was a swimmer at USC. Her brother was the starting quarterback on the USC team. And to hear one of Todd's younger sisters talk about it, it was entirely, oh, she's a swimmer. She has good genes. I'm going to marry her so that she will give birth to more athletic children. It's a little sick, to say the least. But this is how Marv saw the world. During her pregnancy, her diet was very strict. There was no salt, no sugar, no alcohol, no tobacco. When he was born, Todd was only fed fresh vegetables, fruits, and raw milk. And to hear Marv say it, he said, some guys think the most important thing in life is their jobs, the stock market, whatever. To me, it was my kids. The question I asked myself was, how well could a kid develop if you provided him with the perfect environment? And that's why I decided to be a proponent of eugenics. Yeah, it's like there's a good dad that's trying to break its way out of this shell, but it just keeps turning into a Nazi. It's if Richard Williams was a Nazi. (laughs) That's pretty much what it is. Not far off. Uh, Later in life, Todd would come to identify the love that Marv had for him as, quote, performance-based love. Uh, And we'll kind of touch on that a little bit throughout this. But 
to call it a perfect environment. Marv called it a perfect environment. That would be a bit of a misstatement to say the least. And there's only, there, I can tell you one anecdote that Todd uncovered in therapy, actually, that kind of touches on this. When Todd was in sixth grade, he was playing one-on-one basketball against an 11th grader at the local YMCA. And as is always the case, Marv is on the sideline coaching up, barking at Todd, telling him what to do. At one point, the 11th grader, who it should be noted is bigger than the 6th grader, uses his size to his advantage to get a bucket. And Marv starts barking at Todd. He says, you better not let him get away with it. And the 11th grader said, get away with what? Like, he's this fucking crazy old guy screaming on the sideline. I'm just trying to play basketball with this kid. Marv instantly said, all right, that's it. No more basketball. We're boxing now. This was a normal thing to Todd because Marv had been putting Todd up into fights since he was in first grade. So very similar to Dooku Kim uh, as, as we go back to an earlier presentation this season. Secret underground baby fighting rings. It's, uh, it's, it's very much like the South Park episode. Black baby basketball? <laughs> yes, crack baby basketball. Thankfully... The, the racquetball court was nearby, and there was another adult that saw this about to happen and stepped in and said, what are we doing here? Let's break this up. And Marv said, you don't break up a fight, you let him finish. And the adult said, you're fucking crazy, I'm breaking up this fight. So Marv threw a right hook that knocked the teeth out of this guy's mouth. Todd would recount hearing the teeth bounce off of the hardwood floor as Marv quickly grabbed him, and they rushed back to the car to get out of there before cops could get there. This is just one story of many which would reveal the intensity with which Todd was raised as a kid. Now, let's not make it out to be like it was just Todd. Let's be clear. Marv slapped the shit out of the whole family. It was a family affair. But especially Todd on the rides back from games, it could be a game where Todd went 25 of 30 for five touchdowns and Marv would be beating the shit out of him uh, in the car ride, hitting him with his open hand because he doesn't want to damage his knuckles. Far be it from Marv to, you know, risk his own knuckles. But you hit him with an open hand and basically recount his mistakes to him throughout. This very quickly develops into a bit of a Stockholm syndrome for Todd because he does see that, you know, Marv is a very well-known trainer in the area. He works with professional athletes. Marv was actually known at the time as being pretty progressive for the time because he would work with black athletes without hesitation. And he would also prefer to work with female athletes because to hear him say it, they had smaller egos and worked harder. And they're easier to abuse because no one will take their complaints seriously. An inclusive eugenist is an interesting twist. Well, I mean, it's it's not inclusive. It's I want both parties to be the best ever so they can create the greatest Aryan children to further this race. A a colorblind eugenicist, we'll say. (laughs) Doesn't care what you look like on the outside. He only cares that you better produce the results. That's all that matters. Get dubs, get numbers. But, I mean, so for Todd, he sees that, yeah, like my dad is working hard with everybody. Everybody else is saying he's this great trainer. It must be true. So therefore, the only thing that I can do to not be abused by my father is to play better. It's also important to note, 
Todd's living a bit of a double life this whole time. Obviously, under Marv's watch, very strict, adhering to the diet, intense training. But when he goes to his grandparents, contrary to that SI article, he did eat Big Macs. He did eat Oreos. He did eat Ding Dongs at his grandparents' house. On Halloween, when they would go out, he would go trick-or-treating. He would get all the candy. Marv would stay home. And he would binge eat all the candy he got before he got home so that Marv wouldn't find out. But obviously, like, he's just terrified of Marv finding out about any of this. When he's with Marv, it's all business. In high school, business is booming for Todd. Plays his first two years at Matter Day. He throws for over 4,000 yards and 34 touchdowns. But as you can imagine, with all of Marv's focus being on Todd's physical development, the marriage ain't going too hot. So after sophomore year, Trudy and Marv Maranovich get divorced. Marv moves into the Capistrano Valley District, where Todd moves with him. And the dynamic shifts a little bit because Todd basically describes it as a bachelor pad. There's these two dudes. They're both single. They're both dating. They're both partying. Marv's loosening up a little bit. And with this just slight relaxing of the tension on the rope that is around Todd Marinovich's neck. He does soar to even greater heights. In his two years at Capistrano Valley, if you combine this with his Matter Day stats, he would throw for a national high school record 9,914 passing yards across his four years. That record does not stand today. As you can imagine, football has progressed in an even more passing-oriented direction. The top two names on the list now are actually brothers. Maddie and Ben Mock both played in Ohio. Ben Hawk held the record for nine years with 17,364 yards across six seasons because he did start as a seventh grader for the high school varsity. (laughs) (laughs) Well, fuck, I guess he was playing on the team. He's putting up numbers. And I mean, the fact he played six years probably contributed to the fact that he held that record. When Maddie came along nine years later, he would throw for 18,932 yards, but only in the four years. And God, that record uh, still stands to this day. Matty. Right. Saskatchewan Rough Riders legends, Matty and Ben Mock. Yeah, and I think, I think Ben played at Cincy. I want to say Matty played at Mizzou. Yeah, they, they both played at two different schools, but Cincy and Mizzou, and then both played for the Saskatchewan Rough Riders at one point. Our story might take us to Canada just yet, Xavier. So stand by. <laughs> Going all over. So after his high school year, this, this is when the, the infamous SI article is written. And they call him America's first test tube athlete. They're, they're sold on the bag of goods of Todd's intense training. Todd is playing it up to them like, oh, nobody could make me do this. I want to do this. I'm so glad that my dad is slapping the shit out of me on a car ride home. It is the best ever. I just love it. But as we said, he was living this double life. And the double life doesn't just apply to Big Macs and Ding Dongs and Oreos. It also applies to sober living uh, and the fact that he was not doing this. Starting his freshman year of high school, he would get stoned before every game to deal with the performance anxiety that he was having to overcome as a result of Marv's parenting and coaching. But, I mean, he's putting up the numbers. and he's the, setting records. Setting records. It's no 
great wonder that the son of the famously intense 1962 captain of the USC Trojan National Championship team, completely of his own volition, just so happens, to choose USC himself to enroll and to become a quarterback for the Trojans. Once he's at USC, though, there's now a whole new world of temptation, right? He's already been getting high behind his dad's back, partying behind his dad's back, sometimes partying with his dad in what I can only assume was the weirdest father-son dynamic ever that junior and senior year. But, you know, now he's at college. He's partying hard all freshman year, but he does have one weekend where he goes back to Trudy. He visits with his mother and he would say, I wish I could go somewhere else and be someone else. I don't want to be Todd Moranovich. A sad yet prophetic statement, one could say. He did redshirt that whole freshman year, so he has nothing to worry about except getting fucked up and partying. For his redshirt freshman season, he is set to be the backup, but the starter suffers an injury in training. And for opening day, he is named the starter. He is the first freshman starter on opening day at USC since World War II. (laughs) Which, even in 1990... Still is like a really good descriptor to put in the context how long it's been. (laughs) He has an up and down season, throws 16 touchdowns as compared to 12 interceptions, but he gets better as the season goes along. He finishes with a 61.4 completion percentage, which is only 0.1 off of the freshman record that was set by Bernie Kosar at Miami. But it was his play late in the season that really started to capture the imagination of Trojan Nation. Against Washington State in one of the last games of the season, he would lead a 91-yard drive, completing 11 passes along the way to score a touchdown to bring them within one. Then they would get the two-point conversion to win the game. This would come to be known as the drive, and it was so impressive that President Reagan called Moranovich and invited him to his home because he was so impressed by his play on the field. Hey, come to my home, young man. Come to Ronald Reagan's house. Right, and like the, the husband of the face of the Just Say No movement. Meanwhile, Todd Marinovich is fucking high out of his mind every time he's getting under center. He's riding off of this freshman year success. Obviously, he already has the hype behind him as being the robo quarterback, the test tube athlete. And entering the 1990 season, he's a Heisman favorite and speculation abounds as to whether or not he's going to enter the NFL draft following the season. On campus, though, The secret's out. His partying lifestyle had gotten out of control. He was so frequently arrested that the guards at the prison would play the theme song to Welcome Back Cotter every time that he ended up back in the block. Welcome Home Cotter, a famous sitcom of the era. Welcome back. Your dreams were your ticket out. Welcome back to that same old So it's an open secret, and he's having an erratic season. He gets suspended for a game at one point because he's skipping so many classes. In the end, his time at USC becomes untenable for two reasons. First of all, there was a very public shouting match with Coach on the sideline during the John Hancock Bowl, which is a great name for a bowl. We need to get rid of all these corporate sponsors. I'd love the John Hancock Bowl. Uh, The Idaho Potato Bowl, also fantastic. We need to bring back true bowl names. The Humanitarian Bowl, come on. 
What are we doing? So he has that public shouting match. And what he also has is an arrest for cocaine possession in the offseason. So with these untenable waters awaiting him in Pasadena, he instead decides to try his luck in the NFL draft. Now, at this point, the warning signs already abound, right? Been arrested multiple times at USC. He has the cocaine possession. Very clearly, not very coachable at USC, arguing with his coach all the time. But what organization loves a dumpster fire more than any other in the NFL? Other than the Browns, because it doesn't feel like the Browns kind of dumpster fire. Right. And we need to remember at this time, this was still the eventual Baltimore Raven. Oh, I mean, they were still bad then. But uh, uh, I was going to say Oakland, but wherever the Raiders were. The Raiders. Of course, the Raiders cannot help but take a chance on this incredible prospect. The son of of the guy who they had hired to run their strength and conditioning for a while. Yeah, that's not not sketchy in any way. Complete coincidence. And I'm sure that Marv gave nothing but great votes of confidence. And uh, so it was that just one pick ahead of Brett Favre, Todd Marinovich, would be taken 24th overall in the first round of the NFL draft. He would be the backup to Jay Schroeder for much of the season, but... In week 16, Jay Schroeder would be injured, which meant that in week 17, Todd Moranovich would get his first start against the Kansas City Chiefs. Played pretty well. He'd go 23 of 40 for 240 yards in a close loss. And this inspired enough confidence to let him start the following week in a wildcard playoff rematch against those same Chiefs. This time, really plays bad. It's an embarrassing loss. It's not great. And now it's basically an open competition coming in. Uh, One thing other to note about this rookie season. Todd is realizing that the the speed of the NFL game, smoking weed before games, isn't really going to be tenable anymore. It's not really going to work for him. So he still smokes weed before the games. But what he also does is he mixes in prescription-grade amphetamines. So you get the weed to mellow you out, get the amphetamines to bring you back up, and get you ready for the game. Hey, man, if baseball pitchers can throw no hitters hopped up on amphetamines, I'm sure Todd can have a phenomenal game at quarterback. All there's, things it, in balance. And I mean, and there's just nothing that could possibly go wrong with this, right? The, the one thing that could go wrong, though, is if he gets popped for a drug test. Obviously, he has this cocaine possession arrest. Why isn't the NFL frequently drug testing him? They are. He is using a friend's urine to beat the tests, which works great for a period of time until one time he gets called for a test and the friend had been drinking heavily the night before. So the drug test then comes back positive for alcohol and this mandates a 45 day rehab stint for Todd. And you know, this is obviously pretty powerful for him. He learns his lessons and he learns instead I'm not going to take weed before games. I'm not going to take amphetamines before games. I'm not going to take anything before games. What he is going to do is he's going to take LSD after games because LSD at least won't show up on a drug test. And as we know, using psychedelics in abusive settings can only result in good things and can only go well for you. So he enters his Doc Ellis era in 1992, and he does start the season as a backup. Eventually, Schroeder gets hurt again. And so he steps back into the starting position. First start, 
throws for 395 yards in a loss. The Raiders would lose the next week. They fall to 0-4. He would win three of the next four games. So now they're sitting at 3-5. and They lose to the Cowboys, fall to 3-6. and Against the Buffalo Bills, he would throw for 188 yards and two touchdowns in a win. The following week, though, against the Philadelphia Eagles, of his first 10 passes, three would be intercepted. And Jay Schroeder would reclaim the starting position. The coaches were obviously very concerned. First of all, the drug use, getting a little crazy. They're also complaining that Moranovich is having a real hard time grasping the playbook, figuring out the offense, which, go figure, he's on fucking acid. No wonder he can't grab concepts such as time and space and where people are on a football field. But they're still keeping an open mind going into the 1993 season, which is to be his third year, when he fails his third NFL drug test, this time for marijuana, and he was suspended for the entire 1993 season. At this point, the Raiders had a choice. Do we keep him on the roster and pay his salary for 1993? Or do we just cut bait? And when even the Raiders have decided that they've had enough, you know things are pretty bad. So they let Moranovich go. He serves the suspension as a free agent for all of 1993. Going into 1994, the Steelers are interested in bringing him in as a third-string quarterback between Neil O'Donnell and Mike Tomczak. But Moranovich decided that this whole NFL culture of testing him for drugs and punishing him when he tests positive for them is really not for him. So he's instead going to try to head up to Canada. Spends two years traveling, actually, before he even ends up up in Canada. He's going to try out for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, but he suffers a serious knee injury on the first day of training camp. He's trying to get sober. But now he has this horrific knee injury and he has this surgery and he has all these pills to take. And eventually one of his high school friends says, hey, man, why are you taking all those pills for? That's crazy. You should do heroin instead. And so it's Todd Moranovich starts abusing heroin as well. Several prison stays, several arrests for drug possession. He's attempting to get clean again. And it's April 1999. He has some interest from some NFL teams to come back in, give it another shot. Unfortunately, playing pickup basketball, he suffers a herniated disc, which is going to cause him to fail the physicals, is going to cause more need for pain relief, and is going to cause more heroin abuse and cocaine abuse. His weight would drop a lot, but he still obviously has this whole pedigree as the test tube athlete, the quarterback. So it would be The BC Lions, who would sign him, largely in a backup role, though there is one incident that is worth talking about in his time with the BC Lions. One time it's halftime, and they're back in the locker room. Todd sneaks off to the back alley to hit his crack pipe. Uh, The bad news is the crack pipe breaks, and it slices his hand. So he has to covertly bandage himself without anybody noticing, A, that he snuck out, B, that he's high on crack, or see that he has this now horrific cut on his hand. The team would ask him to stay for another season after this, trying to provide as much of a, a distraction, maybe, or just an outlet, a system see, for him see, to kids, hopefully stay There's no downsides to smoking crack and playing football, because you can do it, slice your hand open, and 
still get another contract with that team. If you're a well, white he, man. If you're a white man. Very important caveat. But the thing is, though, it's like Todd realized, like, all right, like, I'm fucking smoking crack at halftime. Like, what are we doing here? He realized this is a bad situation, so he tries to get himself out of it. So he goes back to the Los Angeles area, and L.A. has a new football team this year, the L.A. Avengers of the Arena Football League. And what more does an arena football team want than a headline attraction to bring the fans in? And so they do sign Todd Moranovich to be their starting quarterback. He's trying to kick heroin throughout this entire season. So he's basically like actively withdrawing from heroin for the entirety of the 2000 AFL season. Despite that, he would still tie the AFL record for touchdown passes in a single game when he would throw 10 against the Houston Thunder Bears. He would be named to the all-rookie team. And on the basis of this, this very successful season, the LA Avengers name him as their franchise player, which allows them to give him a signing bonus, which goes above the AFL salary pay cap scale. And the next day, he is arrested for spending his signing bonus on heroin. Efficiency. It took him less than 24 hours to spend it all. That's what we look for. It's a really fucked up Brewster's Millions. A lot of liquidity within his assets. The, uh, they, they would still bring him back in spite of this. He would start the 2001 season, but his behavior on the field becomes increasingly erratic. He would throw things at refs during games, get ejected from a lot of games. It's just not great. And finally, it got to the point that the LA Avengers said, look, we've had enough. This is a good time to kind of just dive into all of the legal troubles that Marinovich had. 1991, again, as mentioned, when he was with USC, arrested for cocaine possession. In 1997, he was arrested on suspicion of growing marijuana. In 2000, he was arrested for sexual assault. And then 2001, was arrested on possession of heroin. In August 2004, this one seems a little petty to me. He was arrested for skateboarding in a prohibited zone. (laughs) I think that one's a cool crime. Very cool. He would be arrested in a public bathroom in Newport in May 2005 uh, because he was found with drug paraphernalia. He would give his occupation as an unemployed artist and anarchist to the police. In August of 2007, he was arrested and charged with felony drug possession and resisting a police order when he was stopped for skateboarding near the Newport Pier boardwalk. He would plead guilty to felony possession of amphetamine and misdemeanor syringe possession and resisting arrest. The Superior Court Commissioner decided to give him another chance and instead just ordered rehab instead of any jail time for him. He is sober for about a year, works with the National Drug and Alcohol Treatment Centers. Then in April of 2009, he was arrested for failing to appear in court for a progress review of his rehabilitation. We then go seven years until his next arrest, August 22, 2016. He was arrested in Irvine when he was found naked and in possession of drugs in a neighbor's backyard. Authorities said that a naked Marinovich tried to open the sliding glass door of an Irvine home. Uh, and then when he couldn't open, he just passed out in the yard. <laughs> it's like, fuck it. I'll just I'll just fall asleep here. Um, was cited for trespassing, possession of a controlled substance possession of drug paraphernalia, possession of marijuana. Uh, he was sentenced to 90 days in jail, but was able to have that sentence suspended and would not have to serve it if he were to have a successful rehab stint 
and stay out of legal trouble for 36 months. Going backwards a little bit, in 2009, while he is in rehab, he does one of the smartest things that you can do if you're in rehab. He pursues and begins a romantic relationship with a fellow recovering addict. He would be married to Alexandria Bambas, and they would have a son, Baron, together, and a daughter, Koski. But Todd finds it very difficult to, to be a good father, so largely family takes care of the kids. We do need to circle back, though, because while we have that cliffhanger in 2001 with the L.A. Avengers, Todd Marinovich's professional football career does not end there. In 2017, as part of his continued rehabilitation, he would join the SoCal Coyotes of the Development Football International, first as a quarterback's coach, and he would volunteer with the local youth throughout the Coachella Valley. Eventually, Marinovich decided, I'm getting the itch. I want to come back and play. <laughs> Are we sure so, that was the itch that he got? Well, he is sober at this time. He is fully sober. And so at the age of 48, on September 3rd, 2017, Todd Marinovich plays his first sober football game since he was 15 years old. Goes 19 of 28 for 262 yards and seven touchdowns and route to a 73 to nothing win for his Coyotes. God damn. He would, however, aggravate a shoulder injury during that game, and he would never play again. There is a very good article, a more recent one, written on Sports Illustrated that deals on what Todd Marinovich's life has been like, largely. And a lot of it is just overcoming this childhood trauma, unpacking it, remembering it, reliving it, and trying to move forward from it. He's at the point now where when he relapses, he knows why he relapses, at least. But these relapses still do happen. In 2017, shortly after that shoulder injury when he was playing for the development football team, he's in Oregon, recreational marijuana is legal, and he drives past a shop. And he's debating, do I go in? And he knows the drugs aren't going to lead him to happiness. He knows what's going to happen. He knows if it's going to start the vicious cycle. If his body gets a taste of pot, it's going to want something stronger. So he drives away and then he turns back around and he buys the pot. He returns to California. He knows the pot's not enough. So he finds some speed to bring back up the heroin. The speed gets to be too much. So then he goes to heroin and he's realizing that this is just a, a horrific cocktail and a horrific path that he's down again. So he has a check-in with his probation officer. And before they ever give you a urine test, they basically just give you an oral test where they just ask you, like, are you high? Are you using? For the first time, Todd decides to be honest with the probation officer. And for the first time, he admits to his drug use as opposed to being found out via test. He goes to a detox center. He's going to miss his son's first flag football game. So he leaves detox a day early to go to his son's game. This comes with a mandatory 45 days in jail. When he gets out of rehab this time, something he realizes is his father now at this point is well into his 70s. And Marv is kind of like a shell of the man that he once was. He's been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. He's fallen apart a little bit. And Todd is now starting to question 
why do I go back to visit my father? And what it really goes back to is that for as long as he can remember, the only sense of satisfaction he could ever get was knowing that he had Marv's approval. And if he didn't have Marv's approval, he had to seek that out. And if he couldn't get that, he would dull the fact that he didn't have Marv's approval by using. So he realized this about himself. He's starting to realize his habits. The one thing that he really leans into a lot more is his art. Uh, Todd has always claimed throughout his life, art is his true passion. Football is not his passion. Art is his passion. He studied fine arts at USC. He has an online art gallery that you can check out. It has a whole bunch of abstract realism. I would say these are maybe somewhat Picasso inspired. I would describe his art style. Uh, within the article, there is one of Magic Johnson holding NBA finals. There's one of a running back seeming to be running over a building. All kinds of artwork. I, I will leave it to our resident art expert as to if it is any good, but it is at the very least a healthy creative outlet that Todd tries to lean himself into. And I mean, and that's basically where Todd is these days. He is, funnily enough, currently dating, though not engaged to or marrying, Allie Smith, who is the daughter of Larry Smith, who was the coach that he feuded with while at USC. So interesting dynamic there. We should note that Marv Marinovich, passionate a father as he was, as big a piece of shit as he may have possibly been, he did pass away at the age of 81 in December 2020. The, the Todd Marinovich story very obviously is a bit of a parable and a bit of a warning to any parent that wants to encourage their kids or try to push their kids to their greatest limits to, to succeed athletically kind of the perils that can come along with that. And while we did kind of touch on Todd's battles with addiction in, in a little bit of a humorous light, it is a serious thing. We don't want to understate that. Thankfully, as of right now, most recent reporting, Todd is sober, doing his best to try to find meaning in his life. But it is a life that was built upon a lie, basically. And the lie being that he was this perfect quarterback. He was this perfect kid. He was this perfect protege of his father. And if, if for some reason, Jake San Miguel, Jake, if you're listening to this, holy shit, dude, let your kid have his own life. Let him do his own thing. Stop fucking taking him to all of these college football programs that may or may not even care about him. Let him be a kid. Let him eat the candy or else the candy might turn into heroin in 20 years. Please, for the love of God, do not raise your kid in the way that Todd Marinovich was raised, because we don't need any more of those. But though it is a cautionary tale, I do believe it is a tale of one of the guys in the history of sports, and hopefully a story that we can avoid repeating in the future. That was great, Diaz. Before we even get into it later... Can we preemptively ban Marv Marinovich from ever being oh, in the whole yeah, yeah, Can we just, can we just put that it's out dumb. there? Yeah, no Marv. Whatever demons he had, I don't give a shit about those. He, he, he continued the cycle instead of trying to break it. What? But Marv Marinovich is banned, but we do have two more candidates who I don't think will be banned. It would, it's a pretty high bar to clear the shittiness bar of Marv Marinovich. So I would love to hear of one of the other Teen Titans that we have to discuss today. Well, Diaz, since you're so interested in the Eastern Bloc 
inspiration that Marvin Rinovich had, why don't we just go straight to the Eastern Bloc? Because oh, no. when when we talked about Teen Titans, I knew immediately I wanted to go with gymnastics. Just the nature of the sport, the fact that it chews teenagers up and spits them out. Like it had to be the one that we went to. And initially, my mind went to Mary Lou Retton. Uh, who has a teenager in 1984, just eight years after taking up the sport and five weeks after having last minute knee surgery, went to the 1984 Olympics, wins gold medal, first ever all around gold medal for an American woman. This is unfortunately before she becomes, unlike Tom Rinovich, an enormous Ronald Reagan fan who does go and hang out with him and become a giant supporter and even lead the RNC at one point in the Pledge of Allegiance. So she's out. What I'm going to do instead so I'm going to go back to the 1976 games that inspired Mary Lou Retton. And that is where we can find my guy, the guy that I want to discuss today, Nadia Komanech. Isn't it Komanech? Or is that just an anglicization of it? Komanech, Komanech. It's Romanian. Potato, potato, tomato, best. tomato. Yeah. I mean, it, you're probably right. I think I've just always heard it in American as Komanech, which we fucking Americanize or anglicize everything. So we're probably wrong. I mean, we may be. Who knows? What I can tell you with certainty is that she was, as I mentioned, born in Romania on November 12th, 1961. Happy belated birthday there, Nadia. Uh, she is born to Georgi and Stefania in the Carpathian Mountains, which you may recognize as where Dracula is from. In the 70s, parents split. Dad moved to Bucharest. But uh, Stephanie keeps the whole family there, Nadia and the other siblings that she has, in Onesti, tiny little town. As a kid, Stefania cannot control Nadia. She's too rambunctious, too energetic. So in order to get her to literally, as she says, just do her cartwheel somewhere else, she enrolls her in a gymnastics class, you know, just to get her energy burnt out. And one day, Nadia and her friend Viorica are out in front of school, and they are, you know, they're six, and they're doing cartwheels. They're noticed by another Onesti native. This is a guy who had been a former boxing and hammer throw champion, but had just recently become the gymnastics coach for the Romanian national team, all-time great, Bela Kerogi. Bela Kerogi had recently set up the primary facility for Romania, which had a very strong gymnastics program here in Onesti. Now, for everyone else, this was very out of the way. All of the rest of the students there are like traveling from many, many miles around in different parts of the country because it is meant to be secluded. But here, just a couple miles from the school, Stumbles across these two girls, and he asks them both if they want to come. Uh, Nadia says yes. Viorica actually goes on to just become a nationally renowned ballerina instead. So we will not hear any more of her. And this act of serendipity brings Nadia into the gymnastics world. Real quick, we have an issue with her preteen records, and that is I understand I technically cannot enter them into records for the tribunal to decide upon, but I need to mention them, I feel like. I know they're not necessarily going to be considered here, but at the age of nine, She's the youngest ever competitor in the Romanian National Gymnastics Championships. Not even double digits before she makes it there. And then the next year when Romania and Yugoslavia square off in an international competition, it is her first ever. She's the youngest to be doing that at that time. And she does win the all-around title with the team as well as the team gold. Her junior's career is just child's play. She's absolutely smoking these other punk-ass kids. And so in 1975, she's 13 finally move on to the major international competition. And it's going to start at that year's European Women's Artist Gymnastics Championships. It's taking place in Norway. It's her debut season. And she gets second place in the floor exercise, her first ever time here. That's incredible, right? That's the only event she didn't win gold in during those championships. 
Uh, and that is, by the way, in addition to the all around, just absolutely crushes it. And so we know from my intro that this is building up to the 1976 Montreal Olympics. She and a Soviet of the USSR, Nellie Kim, they're emerging as the top two European medal contenders at this time in these like test events ahead of the games. Uh, Komanech gets an all-around gold and the balance beam gold, as well as three silvers. She does come second to Kim in two of those, gold for Kim in the bars, the floor exercise, and the vault. The bars in particular, that one hurts. That is Nadia's like signature event. So fallen silver to that one. It's tough, but... She gets another chance to kind of prove herself in the build-up to the Olympics at something called the America Cup. It was a brand new competition being held at uh, Xavier's beloved MSG because it was 1976. It was a big bicentennial thing. So she comes in. She gets two perfect tens in competition, one in a prelim for the vault and one in a final for the floor exercise in the all-around. And this is not a common thing at this time. So Nadia is like, Really getting a lot of this, uh, you know, hype as she enters the Olympics as a 14-year-old. July 18th, the women's program is starting off here in Montreal. And the team all around is first. They're going through that circuit for the team all around. And Nadia is at her very best event, once again, the uneven bars. I've, I've watched this. I recommend if you want to look it up. It's about a minute and a half altogether. It's a very short routine. And it is admittedly there are like less truly impressive physical tricks, I guess, for lack of a better word that they are doing in this versus say, you know, modern Olympics. Um, that's all absolutely true. But at the same time, it's really an incredible routine to watch. There is, I, I feel like an interplay between the two different sized bars that uh, maybe doesn't show up as much now. Modern. I, I don't know a lot about gymnastics. I think it looks really, really fucking cool. And the judges agree that they think it looks cool. In fact, it looks so cool to the judges as to be perfect. Nadia receives the first ever perfect 10 in Olympic gymnastics history with this performance. The crazy thing, like gymnastics to me is kind of like, like watching gymnastics is kind of like wine. Anytime I see anybody do anything in gymnastics, I'm like, like, that was great. That was fucking awesome. And then they'll be like, oh, that's like an 8.2. And it's like the same thing with wine. Like people who say they have a refined palate, like, oh yeah, the tannins on this. I'm like, yeah, it's fucking wine. Tastes pretty good. <laughs> well, it's, so, so I appreciate that the judges at least have, have this finer palate to be able to distinguish perfection for us. Well, they did. I mean, this is the first ever one. It was not something that I think the judge's palate was necessarily prepared for. Uh, and in fact, though the announcer says after this goes out, a 10 has gone on the board. It's a very British announcer. Uh, a 10 did not actually go on the board because the judges weren't ready for this, nor was Omega who made the scoreboards. The scoreboards couldn't make a 10. They didn't have a second digit. They literally weren't ready for anyone to get a perfect 10 since it had never happened. So they just put 1.00 instead and Everyone knew what it meant, but hysterical to me. Which is also because, like, the way that gymnastics is scored, I I don't even know if a 1.0, like a true 1.0, is possible. You would need to, like, walk up to, like, the balance beam and just, like, sit under it, I think, to get a 1.0. So I'm going to go ahead and get the bad news out of the way about the 1976 Olympics. Nellie Kim and the Soviets 
do win team gold. Romania gets silver. Benelli does win the team gold there. She also becomes the second ever person to score a perfect 10 shortly after. Our friend Nadia Komenich does. Does so in a gold medal vault performance where Nadia is 0.025 behind a two-way tie for silver, pushing her off the podium entirely. Uh, she gets a bronze in the floor, but once again, Nelly gets the gold there. So that's the bad news. The good news is literally everything else, because although she just got that 10, as did Nelly, Nadia scores six more perfect 10s. I want to repeat this one more time for emphasis. No one in Olympic history prior to the 1976 Olympics had ever scored a perfect 10, and she puts up seven. She is. It's almost cheapening the 10, because one of those <laughs> have to, has to have been better than the others. So there, there is a level where it's just 10, but you're like, I know that 10 number six was by far the only 11 of the 10s. I mean, the only thing that comes to mind for me is she is who LeBron wishes he was. Not one, not two, <laughs> not, two not, three, not three, not four. <laughs> we mentioned that in the bad news, quote unquote, she got a bronze and a silver. Balance beam, gold, uneven bars. Are you kidding me? Her signature event, gold. All around, gold. And when she gets that, she becomes the first ever Romanian in history to do it, which does also I think does not make it shocking that she is at the age of 14, the youngest ever all around champion An incredible Olympics. Again, inspires Mary Lou Retton who's watching at home. Nadia heads home. She gets the sickle and hammer gold medal and uh, is named a hero of socialist labor, which is a great title that I would love to receive at some point. If anyone ever wants to bestow that internationally, she's the associated press's female athlete of the year. She's the BBC's overseas sports personality of the year. And here in America, she gets very popular due to you know a show that is near and dear to Diaz and I's heart and a, for some reason, hated enemy of Xavier, which is ABC's Wide World of Sports. They do a big montage of her dominant run, and they put this composition underneath it called Cotton's Dream. It was part of this uh, film score for a 1971 movie called Bless the Beasts and Children, which is about like some summer camp kids trying to free bison or something. The song is so popularly associated with this montage that it has been more or less officially renamed Nadia's theme. And it's interesting that ABC uses it because CBS had used the same song recently in 1973 when to compete with their rival ABC and their impressive slate of daytime soap operas, they debuted The Young and the Restless, which is used, Cotton's Dream later retitled Nadia's theme as its theme song for over 12,500 episodes at the time of recording this. So, Romania has an international star, Time for them to start ruining her life. In 1977, she's all set to go defend herself at the European Championships. There's a little bit of a scoring controversy. And Romania's leader, Kosciuszko, I'm not entirely sure if I'm pronouncing that one correctly, but... Kosciuszko. Uh, Kosciuszko, there we go. He orders that they just leave. You're not allowed to stay, you're not allowed to continue competing, and so, regretfully, she does leave. And, you know, when she gets back home, they take her out of Onesti. They take her away from Bella Carolyi, her coach. They make her go to Bucharest, 
all to just kind of like, you know, isolate her and, and use her as a PR tool and all of these things. Well, well, she's starting to go through puberty and she is just miserable. Like it, it gets to the point where she has said she tried to take her own life in 1978. She is very thankfully unsuccessful, but almost immediately after this attempt has to go to the 1978 world championships. And now like she just has a different body than she had two years ago. She finishes fourth in the uneven bars, like unthinkable. After this like two year pile of shit, Romania starts to wise up a little bit. They decide, okay, you can go back to train at home in Onesti. You can go back to learn how to translate your still very formidable skills. Like admittedly in 78, she did win a gold still in the beam. She's a good gymnast. She just needs someone to help her understand how to use her new body with the skills that she already had. And so she's now going to do that and learn as many teens with their growing bodies must do, how to adjust. And she's going to do it once again with her coach, Bella Carol Yee. It is a return to form under Carol Yee in 1979, defends her all-around title at the Euros, now the first ever time that anyone has won three straight, either male or female. And then she goes to Fort Worth, Texas for that year's world championships. She gets a bout of blood poisoning from a cut on her wrist from one of the buckles during early competition, uh, is told by the doctor, you know, don't compete anymore. And then disobeys the doctor's orders in order to help Romania win team gold, which was their first ever in any international competition. Again, with a bout of blood poisoning and also at the age of, I believe, 17 at this point. Look, I mean, I too have disobeyed a doctor's orders to return to competition for my team. Xavier will remember, of course, the intramural basketball game that I played nine days after breaking my fibula. You got to lay it on the line for the team. It's not for self, it's for team. And we did lose that game by 30. So mine was in vain. Very unlike Nadia actually winning the title. And don't fight people who are much bigger than you who you can't actually fight. That's just a general advice. There's no specific reason for (laughs) for any of us saying that. Yeah, very, very general. No one take anything from that. Um, Well, here, so... Here's a general thing. Generally, when we come to the 1980 Summer Olympics, it's a bit of a downer, right? We've come across this many times in this show. We've got someone who's having a beautiful, promising career. We hit the 1980 Summer Olympics, big old roadblock. Good news, we're in the Eastern Bloc, baby. Romania is absolutely competing in these 1980 Summer Olympics. So Nadia is going to go there with Romania. And Romania, uh, Coach Kescu, you know, he's like, touting oh man it's the first all communist games this is great everyone's kind of saying that on the eastern block but nadia knows that like sure it's the all communist games i'm going into moscow i'm going into soviet territory this is an away game for me i am not you know beloved here at this point due to her growth she's gotten four inches taller since her you know peak peak and she just really cannot do uneven bars the same way can't do the same routine but she does get the floor gold that to this point had eluded her She gets a gold on beam. She is still, to date, the only ever gymnast to repeat on beam in back-to-back Olympics. Unfortunately, Kim and the Soviets do once again beat team gold. Just one second. The Soviet Union started competing in 1952 in the Summer Olympics, and they competed all the way through 1988 until they dissolved after that. It's 10 Olympics, nine of which the Soviet women won the team gold medal for in gymnastics. So and then also, the whole time. 
Well, and also in 1992, immediately afterwards, the unified government's team of basically all the old Soviet Union teams won a gold once again. There's, once again, some scoring controversy. Now, Koshikescu isn't going to say anything about this because it's in Soviet Russia. However, Bela Karolyi will absolutely talk about this. He is apoplectic about the fact that uh, Yelena Davidva is the all-around winner over Nadia. He is furious about this, and to Romanian, to the Romanian government, this is very embarrassing. And so when they get back, things are kind of even worse for them at home. They are still trying to wield her for PR, and so next year, 1991, it's her final year as a teen. This is the last one you know, we can really consider, I guess. Uh, she goes on a tour of the U.S. called Nadia 81 pretty great to have a, a tour named after yourself i think and she's got a bunch of coaches there's romanian gymnasts u.s gymnasts on it and at the end carol Yee and his wife they approach nadia and they tell him we are going to defect and we want to know if you're interested in staying here in america with us she decides no because she doesn't want you know any uh, negative impact for her family so she says to go back carol Yee and his wife stay and it is a fucking lockdown now in romania when she returns because They've seen one person leave. They don't want to possibly let that happen a second time. And so all of her travel, all of her activity, it's all restricted as we exit her teens and into her 20s. She does go in 1984 when Romania breaks ranks with the Soviets this time to participate in the Los Angeles Olympics, one of very, very few countries to be in both 1980 and 1984. She's able to be there and actually see Bella Carol Yee with his new protege, Mary Lou Retton. Which is, you know, part of how I got here in the first place through all of our links. But she can't even go over and talk to her former coach, her former mentor. And uh, as you know, she watches Mary Lou Retton win with him. She decides it's it's time for me to hang it up. She retires. They get back. Country holds a formal retirement ceremony. But now she's not necessarily of any use to them. And so she's got all of the same lockdown stuff, but none of the fun privileges. And so. It really just kind of becomes unbearable. Uh, She's constantly surveilled. And finally, over the next five years of this just being shitty, in November of 1989, just a few weeks before the Romanian Revolution, she and several others, friends that she knows, they cross into Hungary, into Austria, and eventually by foot they make it to a plane that takes them to the U.S. She's now successfully defected there. She's been here before a couple of times. She's made some friends. When she first went in 1976 for that American Cup at MSG, she met an American gymnast at the time, Mark Connor. He was 18, she was 14. You know, they didn't interact too much. She was a much bigger star than him. She doesn't even later on remember that she meets him at the Olympics. Mark does, but she does not. However, then in 1981, on that Nadia 81 tour, 19-year-old Nadia meets 23-year-old Mark. And they're able to, you know, interact a little bit more as peers, and they become friends. And so eight years later, when she's now moved here in 89, he has a friend that she can seek out. So she does go seek him out in Oklahoma, where he has a gymnastics school. He employs her there, gets her on her feet. And once you know it, seven years later, the two of them are married. They're still married to this day. Uh, They've got a son, Dylan. And in fact, uh, if my calculations are correct, they are currently navigating life as parents of a team to kind of bring this full circle. But to go back to her teen years, she is the youngest ever Romanian competitive gymnast at the national level, at the international level, at basically anything that you want to say. She won as a teen nine gold medals at the Euros, 
including the first ever three-peat at the all-around of either men or women. She was the first ever Romanian all-around gold medalist in Olympic history. The first ever 10 in gymnastics. Again, putting up, I have to restate it, fucking seven after doing it for the first time. (laughs) Five golds, three silvers, one bronze in her games. And not only is she the youngest ever all-around at 14, with age eligibility cutoff being raised to 15 in 1980 and then 16 in 1995, unless someone's lying, she is going to be the youngest ever all-around female champion for the rest of Olympic history, staying there preserved, the age of 14, an ultimate teen titan. You know, the Omega scoreboard, it's not able to put up a 10. It can only put 1.00, but that is all we need for Nadia Komanech because she is one of one and one hell of a guy. And it's hard to argue that you forget just how much politics is involved in, in all international sports, but especially gymnastics in the late seventies and early eighties. But you know, politics voting, this is all stuff that we'll get to at the end of this when decisions need to be made within this guy form of government. Uh, are we a duchy? We'll figure that out later. What we need to figure out right now is Xavier, the identity of your guy this week. Yes, but before we do that, James, would you like to know that Gunnar Henderson and Adley Rushman finished 8-9 in MVP voting? That sounds about right. That sounds pretty accurate. I, I'm not going to lie. I'm kind of surprised that Gunnar beat Hadley. Very nice. So Adley got the highest vote, which was fourth, but Gunnar got four fifth place votes, so he ended up doing better in the overall score. Obviously, Shohei was unanimous, so we don't really need to get into it. But with that being said, you know, as you have already said, James, Olympic sports are a hotbed for this sort of teen accomplishment. And as you have also mentioned, a lot of times this ends up with teens who get severe injuries or mistreated by their coaches, you know, or trading early success for long-term injuries and issues. But I want to talk about one of the rare teen Olympic sensations that kind of went out on their own terms without a lot of the long-term issues, at least none that we know of. You never know, unfortunately, with these things, if something comes out in the future. But so today I want to talk about a local Philly guy and one half of NBC's phenomenal figure skating broadcasting team, Tara Lipinski. This is an excellent choice. So Tara was born June 10th, 1982, right here in Philly. She grew up right over the river in Sewell, New Jersey. And at the age of three, she started roller skating and eventually became national champion at her age group at nine years old. That same year, she started figure skating as well. And eventually she switched exclusively to figure skating and took lessons at one of Diaz's favorite places, the University of Delaware. And... She was really good at it. In 1991, later that same year, Tara's father gets promoted at work. And due to that, he has to move the family from New Jersey to Sugarland, Texas, right outside of Houston. While there, Tara trained on a local public rink, but you know, she continued to show a lot of promise. And two years later, Tara and her mother returned to Delaware to resume her training with the coach, uh, Jeff DiGregorio. Meanwhile, Tara's father stayed in Texas to financially support the family. And that's important to know, that this family is now split up across thousands of miles, 
because one parent needs to stay home to work while the other stays with Tara while she trains. 1994, she earns a silver medal in the novice women's division at the, at the 1994 U.S. Figure Skating Champions. Then at the U.S. Olympic Festival, she becomes the youngest athlete to win a gold medal at, again, 12 years old. She then goes overseas for her first international competition, the Blue Swords in Chemnitz, Germany, and she wins first place. Still as a junior skater, at the 1995 World Junior Championships, she comes in fourth place and then competes in the U.S. Championships, still as a junior, but just in the senior championships, and comes in second place. <laughs> so the, jun- the World Junior Championships were a more difficult competition for her than the U.S. Senior Championships. Damn, does not say good things about our level of competition at that point. Yeah, which is kind of ironic given that we will talk about some of her competition in a little bit. After a disappointing fifth-place finish at the 1996 World Junior Championships, which due to their, the, the way they name it, was actually held in 1995, Tara and her mother decided to look for a new coach because the then 13-year-old Tara was still the most promising skater in America. Coaches from all over wanted to train her. So coaches would come to see her and her mom where they would interview the coach and the coach would give like a sample lesson on how they would train Tara. And after essentially like the bachelor for coaches, Tara and her mother would move to Michigan. So Tara could train with a man named Richard Callahan. Now training under Callahan in January, 1996, Lipinski wins a bronze medal as a senior level skater at the U.S. Championships at the age of 13. And through this, she qualifies for the World Championships, where she is the youngest skater there. She does not win the World Championships at 13. She finishes a respectable 15th as by far the youngest person there. Fellow American Michelle Kwan wins gold. Michelle Kwan, also a teenager, but is a full two and a half years older than Tara. So, you know, who cares about that 15 15 and a half year old? They're essentially ancient at this point. A couple months later, February 1997, at the age of 14, Tara breaks through and she becomes the youngest skater to win a U.S. championship title, beating defending champion Michelle Kwan. Again, pushing out that now 16-year-old Kwan. You're too old. I'm the new hotness at the age of 14. I am the greatest. The and she breaks the record that was set by Sonia Klopfer, who was 15 when she won the U.S. Nationals in 1951. According to author Ed Swift from Sports Illustrated, who did a big deep dive into the Lipinski-Kwan rivalry, he says that this competition was the start of that. A month later, they both go to Worlds, and Tara becomes the youngest female skater to win Worlds. Again, only 14 years old. She was a month younger than the previous record holder, a different Sonia, Sonia Henye from Norway, who won the first of her 10 world championships in 1927. So she broke a U.S. record from 1951 in a world record from 1927. Reporter Yara Longman of the New York Times called Lipinski's Free Skate a light, airy performance that was composed and nearly flawless. She actually had, she was behind after the short program, But her free skate ended with more second-place votes than a Russian skater, Arena Slutskaya. So because of a tiebreaker and how that was calculated, she ends up, that's how she wins Worlds. After this season, 
She trains in ballet with Russian ballet teacher Marina Sheffer in order to, quote, make her programs more mature and sophisticated, which is hard to do for a now 15-year-old, but I guess that's what they were going for. They wanted it to be more serious. So we head into 1998 U.S. Championships, and this time Tara finishes second behind Michelle Kwan because she fell during a triple flip attempt during the short program. Regardless, she still enters into the Nagano Olympics in February as co-favorite alongside Kwan. Everyone's like, all right, it's going to be one of the two of them. You know, that is our assumption here, which probably a good assumption to have, seeing as how they're by far the best. So we're in Nagano, we're at these Olympics, and Kwan wins the short program. Eight of the nine judges put her in first place. A near unanimous short program victory. Lipinski is in second. Although it was pretty well established that Lipinski's short program was more technically difficult than Kwan's, they just kind of liked the performance of Kwan's more. It was more of a flawless performance, even if it was a little easier in terms of technical ability. And so then we get to the free skate. Lipinski's free skate at this point has a triple loop, triple loop combination, and seven different triple jumps, which at this time was considered the most technically difficult program in Olympic history. And she nails it. She gets 5.8s and 5.9s out of six out of nine first place votes. Kwan finishes second. Despite them both winning one program and Kwan getting more first place votes overall across the two programs, the free skate is weighted more heavily than the short program. And so Tara Lipinski wins gold with a total score of 2.0 to Kwan's 2.5. The next best skater, Chen Lu of China, had a score of 5. And only two other skaters were even in the single digits. That's how much they blew past the competition. Like, it sucks for Kwan because, you know, they said that she skated brilliantly and would have won the Olympics in literally any other year. It's just that Lipinski was essentially perfect with the hardest program known to mankind at that point. You got to play the team in front of you. So at the age of 15, Tara Lipinski was the youngest Olympic gold medalist in figure skating history, breaking the record from the aforementioned Sonia Henye, who came first in 1928, so breaking a record that had stood for 70 years. At this point, again, 15 years old, U.S. champion, world champion, Olympic champion. Month later, because weirdly enough, they still have the world championships the same year when they have Olympics. You'd think that, like, they might just say, okay, maybe we don't need to have worlds this year because the Olympics are this year, but they do have both. Tara withdraws because it turns out she ended up with, like, a glandular infection that meant she had to get molars removed. Like, nothing serious, but enough that would keep her out of competition. And so she, she skips that, but it's like, it's fine. It's only 15. She'll be back. But then one month later, she announced that she was turning professional in order to spend more time with her family. In an announcement on the Today Show, she said, quote, It was really hard for my family to be apart. When I came back from the Olympics, having my mom and dad together, going to movies and malls was such a relaxed feeling. I don't want to be 22 and not know my dad. They gave up so much for me to get this gold medal. I could go back and try to get another one but it would be greedy for me to have them live apart another four years, which is extremely mature from a 15-year-old to say. Because Wildly again, more so than I was at 15. At this point, 
her and her mom have been living apart from her dad for six years because he's funding her being able to do all of this, but they can't get world-class training in Houston where he has to work. I mean, that, that, that's a major sacrifice and a very mature decision from a 15-year-old who still would have easily been the gold medal favorite at only 19 in the Olympics that were held in her home country with Salt Lake. With, I feel like, a, a big uptick in recent years of older athletes who are committed to just hanging on as long as they possibly can and almost seeing it as a challenge to see how long they can hang on at that level. There is something very refreshing about someone saying, hey, man, games all conquered. Boom. See, and you would think that other people would have the same reaction of like, oh, this is a very mature decision for a 15-year-old to do. That was not the reaction from you yeah. from, from U.S. officials. To be clear, yeah, I would not think that. I would not expect that rational reaction from the general public. Yeah, she took a lot of heat from a lot of people. One of the most frustrating was the president of U.S. Skating, who I'm going to say a douchebag 70-year-old man named Maury Stilwell, publicly called out Lipinski saying, quote, she says she wants to spend more time with her family, followed by saying she'll be on tour. Seems like she'll be busier than if she stayed eligible. I'd hate to have my greatest day at 15 and go on my reputation the rest of my life. Imagine the level of hatred you have to have in your heart to trash a 15-year-old girl. I'd hate to be a grown-ass man talking shit on a 15-year-old. If you're born with the name Maury Stillwell, you're born a 70-year-old asshole. Like, even if you think about him saying, like, how she's going to go on tour. Again, the whole point is to train competitively for the Olympics. She had to live apart from her dad for six years. If she's going to be just on tour with skating stuff, she can go home in between these things and does not have to take it as seriously as Olympic training. So she's having both. It's not like, oh, I'm going to be busier on tour. No, it's I don't have to be training 12 to 14 hours a day across the country like. People were just pissed because they wanted to market her for the Salt Lake Olympics. She was the most marketable person they had. And she's like, no, I, I want to do my own thing. So after turning pro, again, at the age of 15, she toured with Stars on Ice for a year. And she was the youngest person to ever win the World Professional Championships at the age of 17. Eventually, she had to undergo hip surgery in 2000 uh, for a torn labrum in her hip that had been apparently misdiagnosed for a year and was causing like arthritis. But she recovered from that and skated for a couple more years before finally retiring in 2002 at the ripe old age, 20 years old. They're pretty perfect for this category. Imagine being at your retirement party and they want to give a toast to your great success and you cannot <laughs> legally have that toast. <laughs> you know, it, it's perfect for a person in the category of Teen Titans to retire at 20. It's like, nope, you're too old to be a Teen Titan now. You have to... Uh, I just picture, like, Robin and Starfire, like, sorry, we're kicking you out now. After that, you know, she took some time off, and she did a lot of acting. Like, she was in The Young and the Restless. She was in the TV movie Ice Angel, The Metro Chase, uh, Are You Afraid of the Dark, Sabrina the Teenage Witch, things like that. Just, you know, kind of having fun. And then she gets into broadcasting, where a lot of our listeners will have seen her now, because her and Johnny Weir are a phenomenal duo. It's so fun to watch. She does World Figure Skating Championships, Grand Prix of Figure Skating, U.S. Figure Skating National Championships, and obviously the Olympics. And she's still doing stuff like that today, but her actual professional and amateur skating career 
all done by 20. Overall, she holds the record as the youngest person ever to be U.S. champion, world champion. Technically, she has now been beaten for Olympic champion by six days by Yulia Lipnitskaya, who won gold in Sochi 2014 at 15 years, 249 days old, compared to Tara's extremely old 15 years and 255 days. So, you know, blame the Olympic schedulers for screwing her over on that one. But still the youngest to have those other ones, youngest to be a world professional champion, and the youngest ever inductee into the U.S. Figure Skating Hall of Fame in 2006 at the ancient age of 24. Just, like, go to a retirement home already at that point. What are you even doing? <laughs> I mean, I just... Eat tapioca. I, I like Tara Lipinski a lot because I love her commentary, and obviously I've gone back because I remember watching Michelle Kwan uh, as a kid and you know, watching you know this this competition between the two, where it's like, hey, one is like a seventeen-year-old star, and it's great, and it's like, oh wait, she's the old one of the pair because the other one is fifteen years old. It's like the way that the Pat Mahomes Tom Brady AFC Championship game was kind of advertised to be if they were both still in high school. <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, I, I I really like Lipinski's career, not even just thinking about how young she was to do all this and have all these records for, for winning all these things so young, but she also did the hardest technical programs in Olympic history at the time. So maybe not only am I 15 years old at the Olympics, I'm going to pick the hardest ever routine and fucking nail it when the person I'm up against has possibly the best skate of her life, and I still beat her. It's phenomenal. And, you know, I, I think Lipinski really meets the, like, the criteria for Teen Titan. Well, I think no question that the criteria has been met in that case. I, mean, I think it's been met for all three of these candidates. This is not anyone walking away with it. This is three teens that we need to really sit down and examine if I may, to kind of begin with a dissection of Mr. Marinovich. I really like particularly the angle that you started with, because you know, we think about the Bryce Harpers on the cover of Sports Illustrated, because we talk about that over and over, and we think about the LeBrons on the cover of Sports Illustrated, because it keeps coming back up, because they were good enough that we revisit those covers. And I, I think it was great to remember how many of those, the vast majority, I would imagine, don't turn out. I think there was like a very fascinating way to look at it. And the last game was just so beautiful. Absolute chef kiss. It, it, this may be unfair to Todd. It is a matter of the sport itself. I think it is difficult in this category for him to distinguish himself to the same extent as the other guys simply in the sport of football. I just don't think you for can sure. necessarily have accomplished as much in football compared to these other two. And that's no fault of his own. Marv was making sure if anyone was going to do it, it was going to be fucking Todd. But no, I swear, American football, if your greatest successes are as a teenager, it means you did not have that great of successes. I think it's yeah. fair to say. Yeah. So no, I think that's totally fair. It is very important to note that Terry Lipinski is from Philadelphia. It's, it it's is, been noted. I, we just need to restate it. We need to restate it for anybody that didn't hear it the first time. That Terry Lipinski is from Philadelphia. And that is obviously 
in this member's eyes. A very strong positive. And she trained at Udell, Diaz. She trained at Udell. Pretty good. It's, uh, it's a pretty the, good pandering. I, I know the name of their ice rink, the Asierno Arena, Frank Asierno. I don't know who Frank Asierno is, but I can ask you the arena's name after. Well, and not to step by one here, but what I love about Tara in this category specifically, it's, it's great because she leaves the sport behind to be a teen. Like she not only has the success as a teenager, but actively then afterward goes out and seeks out the experience of being a teenager on top of that success, which is pretty great. I mean, that's why I love that quote. When I came back from the Olympics, having my mom and dad together, going to movies and malls was such a relaxed feeling. It feels like the most teen thing to be going to movies and malls in the late 90s. And I'm like nostalgic for that, even though I didn't experience it because I was a teen 10 years later. Do you think Tara Lipinski had a milkshake at any point before her retirement? Yeah, It's a very random question. It's a very random question. I, I think so. There's, it's, I mean, it's similar to a Michael Phelps thing. There's a lot of calorie consumption there. I think there were For sure. times where she had some, some shakes. For sure. Pro- probably threw a protein scoop in it, too. But There you go. She wasn't bringing her own cake to things. We, I, can, I can say that much. Uh, Good. She was allowed Good. normal ice cream. Yeah, she, she ate some normal food. Refined white flour. Very, very important. But go ahead. Go ahead. I mean, please, Nadia, is your presentation. Please uh, bring up your your secondary arguments. I mean, I've got one pretty basic one. It's the volume. Absolute just volume of teen accomplishment. Now, could Tara have done it? She stuck around? Sure. But she didn't. Nadia did. And, you know, sure, at one point, Tara, not even anymore, but at one point she was the youngest figure skating medal winner. Nadia was younger when she set that record, and sorry, Tara, should have set an unbreakable record that no one will ever be able to qualify for ever again. Like, tough shit. Hey, you know, I think Russia had some shit on this because, again, they broke it by six days, and it was the Russian Olympics, a Russian skater, and they scheduled it two weeks earlier in the year (laughs) than they normally would have. So when Tara set her record, it was February 9th of 1998. When Yulia did it, it was February 20th of 2014. So 11 days later and broke the record by six days. Russian skater in Russia. Oh, you've, I think you've disproved yourself, though, then, because they would have wanted to hold it before February 9th in that case. That's, I think that's the earliest they could possibly do because, again, remember, Russia put their Winter Olympics in, at in their one tropical. beach resort they have in their entire country. Those psychopaths. Very stupid. Yeah, but they bring in the fake snow. You can vet the snow a little more. You know, you make can sure check with all the steroids that you had in that back room where you exactly. swapped out all the piss. You can make sure someone is being paid to bring that snow in, so that they have a nice back government contract. Even if she still held that record, though, 15 versus 14. Here's a question for you, Xavier. Is there a maneuver in figure skating that is known as the Lipinski? Actually, yes. Uh, It was the the triple combination. The triple loop, triple loop, like two triple loops in a row was named after her. Okay, Okay, because that was... She won the U.S. Olympic Festival at 12. So even before teen, she was kicking... Uh, does kicking not qualify at, for this category. I t- does I not qualify. Out, yeah, we're, we're talking 13 and 19 here. All right, well then 13, she wins a bronze medal as a senior level skater at the U.S. Championships. Yeah, that, so that, that was the, pretty good. And okay, because that, that was going to be a bachelor a level 
it we talked about Nadia's coaches, but again, I can't get over the fact that it's like all these coaches, the best coaches in the world are going to go to a 13-year-old's house to do mock lessons and interviews as to why they are the best coach for her bachelor style. That is pretty great. I have it, it. What it feels like right now is Xavier's pretty dug in. I respect that. I also love Tara Lipinski. This is a choice between two that I like. So it feels like what it's come down to here. I'm, I'm trying to convince Diaz, who is being swayed somewhat by the Philly and Dell pandering. And I respect that. If I may, my final arrow in the quiver. Tara Lipinski made an appearance on Young and the Restless at one point. That is great. When she appeared on that television show, it was, after all, Nadia's theme that played the role. Just saying. I'm just saying. I'm just leaving it at that. That's my last attempt. Was Nadia on Scooby-Doo or Family no. Guy? No. Admittedly, neither of yeah. us. So I think, I think we leave this to you, Diaz. It is your category. How do we feel about our Teen Titans? I, I'm doing what I always do when there's a conflict between the two, which is I must consult with our AI overlords. And I've gone to chat never GPT. I've gone to chat GPT. And at first I said, who was better in their field, Nadia Kamenesi or Tara Lipinski? And it gave a long answer and then said, oh, they both made significant contributions, better is subjective. It depends on the criteria. So I said, okay, well, who's the better Olympian? And they said, again, ah, it's subjective. You can't really tell. So I asked it to make an arbitrary choice. And it has made an arbitrary choice. And it said, for the sake of making an arbitrary choice, let's say that Tara Lipinski had a better career than Nadia Comaneci. <laughs> this is hey, the first time that hey, ChatGPT You know what? Is. I can do nothing but tip my cap there. The AI overlords have ruled against Xavier in the past. Maybe it is because he's a lawyer. Maybe it is because ChatGPT is trying to take his job one day. Trying to take all of our jobs one day. But there's one thing. That it cannot take. It will never take a place in this hall because AI is not a guy. He was way too good. He won the MVP in 2001. <laughs> and also, Shut up. But, but I'm, I'm, my wires got crossed. I'm talking about the wrong Philadelphia athlete. We need to talk about the Philadelphia athlete who came onto the scene, who trained at Delaware, dominated, was bullied for retiring at 15 years old by a grown ass man for some fucking reason. Uh, We need to talk about the guy who had Johnny Weir as a bridesman at her wedding. And we need to talk about the latest inductee into our illustrious hall, Tara Lipinski. Welcome to the Hall of Guy. Welcome, Tara. That would have been such a cool wedding to be at. I bet that wedding was awesome. I think where I went wrong here is I should have done the Pat Riley move that he always does to the like free agents when they're trying to you know talk to the Heat, and I should have just dumped the seven perfect tens on the table and walked away. But I do appreciate ChatGPT's contributions here, uh, and I'm more than happy to welcome Tara. There is, of course, a list of some other individuals that we appreciate. Those include producer Craig and all of the coders behind him, our musical director Don Ham for our lovely theme music, and most of all you dear listener for joining us again you know the show will continue to roll on throughout the week on blue sky and on discord that is where you can check out our new guys of the day every day all of the links for that can be found at bit.ly slash remember that guy all one word all lowercase so you know feel free to check that out and share it with other individuals that you think would also enjoy checking it out uh because we love doing this and we hope that you continue to enjoy joining us uh i got no clever wordplay here i'm just james i've been the very special guest xavier 
and I'm Diaz, and I might have a little something for you, James, because I don't like white, I don't like wheat, I don't like pumpernickel, but if I'm going to have a sandwich, you better believe I'm getting it on some toasted guy. We're gonna we're gonna not make the playoffs, but we're gonna win some weird games that we definitely shouldn't win, and then lose others that we definitely should have won. Yes, I think you're gonna and beat the Bills this week. The this Bills are a fucking dumpster fire. This is what's gonna happen? We're gonna beat the Bills, and then we're gonna beat the Dolphins on Black Friday, and then everyone's like, "Oh, maybe the Jets are back," and Zach Wilson's turned the corner, and then we're gonna get shut out by the Falcons, and then we're gonna lose to C.J. Stroud and the Texans. Then we'll beat the Dolphins again. We'll beat the Commanders and the Browns and then lose to the Patriots the last game of the year. What would that make us? That would put us at 6-6, 6-7, 7-7, 8-7, 9-7, 10-7, 11-7, 12-7, 13-7, 14-7, 15-7, 16-7, 17-7, 18-7, 19-7, 20-7, 21-7, 22-7, 23-7, 24-